Hi, this is Robert Furrow and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the light of Scripture. Our desire is to find out what God's Word says so that we can determine what we believe and compare what we believe with Scripture, having Scripture as that ultimate authority. Like the Bereans, who were more fair-minded than the Thessalonians in that they received the Word of God with all joy, but they searched the Scriptures to see whether or not these things are so. We have our first question up and ready to go. If you have a question, then write the word question and then write out your question. Make sure that it makes sense and then go ahead and submit it. I want to welcome all of you who are watching us at YouTube, uh, at YouTube and on Facebook. Uh, I hope you're having a great day and I look forward to uh, interacting with you guys today. So our first question is, how do we know that the Bible is inspired? It was also a question on what is the inspiration of the scriptures. And I think it's good for the Bible to tell us, first of all, what the inspiration of scripture is. And I like 2 Timothy 3.16. There's so many passages we could go to, but 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God. And the word inspiration there means God breathed. By the inspiration of God is profitable for reproof, for correction, for doctrine, that the man of God would be thoroughly equipped, lacking in nothing. Meaning that God, meaning that God's word has everything that you and I need. And by faith, as Christians receive the word of God, hopefully with an obedient heart, because we will be blessed if we hear and do these things. Jesus said, when, when a woman cried out from the crowd, a blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast that fed you. And Jesus said, yes, and more blessed is he who hears and does the word of God. More than Mary. Mary had such a tremendous blessing in being able to raise Christ, the Messiah, and people who are more blessed who hear and do what's in the word of God. Now the Bible tells us in Psalms 12, 6 and 7 that God preserves his word. His word is like refined like gold and that he preserves it from generation to generation, which is a promise that he's going to preserve it. But then we've got the, the geographical um, accuracy of the Bible, that it tells history. There are those that argue that the stories that were told were told long afterwards by a generation uh, that had been taken captive into Babylon and that the history of Israel in Kings and Chronicles didn't really happen. However, there's archeological evidence that it did happen. The Moabite stone, the Sennacherib the cylinders, all tell the same stories that the Old Testament told. And this is really important for us to understand. Not only is the Bible accurate geographically, but it's accurate, accurate historically. It's also accurate scientifically. It's not a scientific book, but when it ventures into the realm of science, it ends up being scientifically accurate. And people will mock the Bible saying, well, the Bible talks about, you know, the sun rising. Well, so do you. The Bible is written from man's perspective, the world around them, and that makes sense. But when the Bible does venture into the realm of science, like in Job and hydrology, it's amazing how accurate it is. And then we have the prophecy, prophecies. And listen, if the Bible could be disproven, it would have been already. If you could have, dis if they could have discredited the Bible, so that millions of people around the world, millions of people in the United States 
would no longer listen to what the Bible has to say, then they would have done that. But there are prophecies. God told the future, and it's evident. Not only did God tell the future, but he told the future about Jesus. It said in Isaiah 9, 6, and we know this existed long before Jesus was ever born, that a child was going to be born who was going to be called Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There are prophecies that we know that God told beforehand, and then we know. We, we know when they were written, and we know what came to pass after that like prophecies about Alexander the Great in the book of Daniel and other places. So we should have confidence in the inspiration of the Bible, that as we read it, that we are receiving God's word. We should be thankful for all the manuscripts that we have to be able to compare scripture to scripture so that we can know the things that we are living for. So thank you for your question. How do we know uh, the Bible is inspired? Uh, because of the miraculous aspects that we find within the pages of Scripture. So I want to, um, again, welcome you guys. I'm going to come back here and look at the questions. We have a question, first of all, uh, from Psychman. Psychman, good to see you. Let me bring this in. Get rid of um, that one. And go ahead and bring this up. Okay. Uh, Psychman says, God brings us joy and peace. And being forgiven, we don't um, lack tons of our sins on our back, as do non, and we don't, and we don't have. I guess that's half, and we don't have tons of sins on our backs like unbelievers. How do we maintain contriteness? Um, so, I I think if I if I'm got your question correctly, Psych Man, uh, forty five. Um, I, uh, I don't think we have any problem with being contrite. We uh, stumble in many ways. God knows that we're made out of dust. God knows our weaknesses and we know our weaknesses. And, uh, and we struggle and God knows that. And we ask him to forgive us. And we humble ourselves and we should be contrite when we, when we sin. Uh, and if you don't think you sin. I'm not saying you don't, but I'm saying if you don't think you sin, uh, then ask God to show you. Because there's a revelation. The Bible says that we have hidden faults that have dominion over us. And so having our sins forgiven by him is wonderful. But day by day, I walk through this world like Peter. I get my feet dirty. I need to go to him and ask him to forgive me. The Bible says that my flesh struggles against the spirit and uh, there's this battle inside of me, so I don't do the things that I want. Paul talked about not doing the things that he wants and doing the things he didn't want to do. And I think that this is a common experience of all of us. And that helps to keep us humble, and it helps for us to walk in that contriteness towards God. Because God does desire a humble and a contri uh, contrition, which is um, just kind of being broken over your sin, feeling like, God, I don't want to do this, but I'm sorry that I did it. So thank you very much, Psych Man. I appreciate it. I just want to remind you that if you're writing down a question, would you write it down and reread it a couple of times? Make sure that it makes sense, and then we'll go ahead and bring it in and look at those questions. Uh, so it's good to see you guys today. We have a question here from Andre. Andre says, uh, the Bible tells us man was made in God's image. Genesis 1, 27 and 5.1. Genesis 5.3 tells us Adam begat Seth after Adam's image. Is every man after Seth created in Adam's image? Yes. 
we the the genetics of Adam and Eve were passed on to their children and we are unlike the other animals so there's no other animal that's created in the image of God and God created us male and female not only men but male and female in the image of God and uh, so uh, we reflect that I think there's a lot of ways there's been a lot of discussion maybe a little bit of it too far um, I think the fact that we have a spirit, God is spirit, and we're going to interact with God in spirit is one of the ways in which we've been made in his image. I'm not saying the only way, but it's one of the ways that we've been made in his image. And yes, you are in the image of God, Andre, and I'm in the image. I, I'm created in the image of God, and that's our value. You and I have value because of that. People try to find value in other things. People try to assign value to people in other things. But the value of an individual, no matter who they are, no matter what difficulties they might have, no matter if they might have some kind of, a, of an illness or some kind of a mental condition, they are created in the image of God still, and they are, they are image bearers. That's who they are. So it's a very powerful concept that gives me a great value, and God loves us created us in his image and he loved us and he wants us to come to him and find the completeness in that by having our spirit brought back to life. Thank you, Andre. I appreciate that. Great question on us being created in the image of God. We have a question here from Travis. Travis says, uh, my question is about the Sabbath. I've been researching. Do you think God would be pleased by moving my main worship to Saturday? Also, do you know anything about the 364-day calendar? All right, let's, so let's take your questions one at a time, Travis. First of all, about the Sabbath. I believe, well, I do, Romans 14. Let me go ahead and see if I can't get this up here for you because if I can find this passage really quick, I think it will be really helpful in understanding the Sabbath. Um, you and I are not under the same commitment that Israel was under to keep the Sabbath, all right? And that's really important. Uh, and I'm gonna go ahead and bring you, bring you, uh, bring the scriptures up on the screen here. Uh, that's really important for us to understand. We were not uh, found in, um, <laughs> um, we, uh, you and I were not under the same, I lost my train of thought for only a second, I'm okay. Uh, you and I were not under the, uh, under the law. And we, the, the, the covenant of the Sabbath was made with Israel. And what the Jews did around the days of Jesus was they added rules and then they claimed that Jesus broke the Sabbath. He didn't break the Sabbath, he broke their rules that they added. And that's what people do today. They say that the Sabbath is going to church. So you gotta to go to church on Saturday in order to please God. But the Sabbath never says that. I have a full length teaching on the Sabbath and I've got a shorter hot topic on should we Christians keep the Sabbath and on the longer teaching, I think I do it on the shorter ones as well, just not as much, but on the longer teaching, I go through all of the passages in the Old Testament that talk about the Sabbath and you see that they are connected to Israel. So you and I as Christians, we have freedom and this is what I wanna show you. This is Romans chapter 14. It says receive, um, let's see what's up. Okay, so I, no, that's not, uh, let's go here. Let's go there, all right. So it says, receive one who is weak in, the, in, uh, in faith, 
but not to dispute over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, and another uh, who is weak eats only vegetables. Let him who eats despise, uh, let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. And let him who does not judge him who eats. So it's just talking about gray areas. And then it says God has received him. Who are you to judge another man's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be able to stand because God is able to make him stand. Now we get to the days. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. So you determine what day you want to serve on. If you want to worship God on, on Saturday, go for it. Just don't judge people who don't. And if you want to worship God on Sunday, go for it. Just don't judge people that go to church on Saturday. It just live out your convictions. It says, he who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks. And he who does not eat, gives to the Lord, um, the, to the Lord he does not eat, and he gives God thanks. For no, none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Now that just speaks about the freedom that you and I have to be able to make decisions about gray areas. And what day we go to church is one of those areas. You can go on Tuesday if you want to. You can go on any day you want to. And don't let anybody lay a trip on you by telling you that you have to go to church on, um, let's see, yeah, that you have to go to church on a certain day. You, you don't. And they're gonna try to go back in, in the law, but we, we are not under the law. The Sabbath was never reinstituted. Jesus is the completion of the Sabbath. So Jesus uh, fulfilled all the law. He became the sacrifice. He became the high priest that gave sacrifice. And he became our Sabbath. He said, Matthew chapter 11, Come unto me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And Hebrews 4, that there is a rest yet for us to enter into. So Jesus is my Sabbath. And I tell people I'm a Sabbatarian because Jesus is my Sabbath. And he fulfilled it. So um, thank you very much for your question, Travis. Uh, I hope that um, that answers it. If not, feel free uh, for a follow-up question if we have time or at another, um, at another Q&A. All right. So I'm going to go ahead and bring in, uh, I think this is uh, Michaela. Question. Uh, she comes to us on Facebook, by the way. A question. I've been studying the Old Testament and I am confused on Christophanies. Are they actually occurrences of Jesus incarnate or people who were Christ-like but not Christ himself? Or were the angels who were holy-like so people assume they were talking to God? And if they were Christ incarnate, do we need to believe in those um, instances of Christ appearing to believe Jesus, Jesus holy? All right, thank you, Michaela. I really appreciate that. Um, so, I th there's a lot of things that are considered to be Christophanies in the Old Testament, and that's a Christ appearance, right? Christ, Messiah, Ophany appearance. Okay, um, in the Old Testament, and Jesus said, "Abraham rejoiced to see my day and saw it." Abraham wrestles with God. Uh, uh, Abraham blesses Melchizedek. Are all of these Christophanies, um, Gideon, the angel of the Lord, Hagar, the angel of the Lord. We could just kind of go through the Bible and all of these different Christophanies. They're all different. But one thing that you notice 
is that when you're talking to the angel of the Lord, they're talking about God and talking about being God. Like in Gideon, you can really see it with Hagar. Hagar says, I've seen the face of God and I didn't die. And, and, and so they, they, they talk as if this angel is God. And I believe this is part of the complexity of God in the Old Testament. That we're seeing, these, these are positive for three in one. There are places in the Old Testament where God is referenced as being three. And, and, and we're, we're told that God is one. And so the three in one is found in the Old Testament. And uh, this complexity of God, again, we, I have a hot topic on the complexity of God um, that you can look up that goes into these details about uh, these, these appearances of Christ in the Old Testament. Now, your second part of your question, do you need to believe in these incarnations to follow Jesus holy? Well, it's the Word of God, all right? So you, you want to you believe them. You want to believe that they took place. If you, if you search them and study them and you have a conviction that it wasn't Jesus, you don't have to believe that they're Jesus. Like for Melchizedek, for example, a lot of people don't believe that that was Jesus. Some people do. And I don't know. It doesn't make any difference towards your salvation. So, yeah, you believe the word of God, right? You believe that an angel appeared to, to Hagar. You believe that the, um, at the, that the angel of the Lord appeared to Hagar, that the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in the burning bush. By the way, the angel of the Lord is in the burning bush talking to Moses. And when Moses says, who should I say sent me? The angel says, tell them I am that I am has sent you. So that's another, as you look at the, the details of it, it is conflating God and who, and who God is with the angel of the Lord. And I think that that's on purpose to give us this complexity of who Jesus is. All right, so hopefully that's helpful, Michaela. Uh, I love that uh, the topic of the complexity of God in the Old Testament, uh, even in verse uh, Genesis 1, 25 and 26, let us make man in our own image. Well, who's the us? Who's creating? It's God that's creating. We know from the New Testament, it's Jesus who's creating. From John 1, 1, Colossians chapter 1, it's Jesus that did the creating. Let us make man in our own image. It would be the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one in essence, one God, three persons. The complexity of God is found in the very first chapter of the Bible. All right, Michaela, uh, thank you. I hope that answers your question. Uh, if you have a follow-up, uh, you're welcome to ask it. Maybe we can get to it later on today, or if not, we can get to it later on in another Q&A. All right, so we have joining us from YouTube, Tom. And Tom says, Pastor Robert, I understand that Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice, but why was it what God required in the first place? So the, on, the, uh, the ultimate sacrifice. So the Bible says that Jesus is the propitiation for us. And that's a fancy word for the only sacrifice that could happen. There's no other way. There's no other sacrifice that would have sufficed. It was Jesus and Jesus alone. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Because you can't have any sin. You can't have, if I died, I would die for my own sins, not for your sins. So Jesus, the Bible says, who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. He knew something he never knew and that was sin. He was tempted in every way that we are, Hebrews says, yet without sin and that we might know something we never knew and that is the righteousness of God in our lives. So um, it is the only sacrifice that would matter because it was a sinless sacrifice. 
And the only way that could happen because of sin nature, that was the, the bloodline of man was contaminated by sin nature, was for God to come and be born of a virgin and to live the life, give us an example of what God is, and then die on the cross, a perfect man dying for you and me. And that is the um, atonement of the work of Christ on the cross. There's nothing else that would suffice. There, there's no other way that it could have been done. Uh, Jesus said, if it's possible, take this cup from me in the Garden of Gethsemane, prayed that three times. And uh, God didn't take the cup from him, which tells us there's no other way for salvation. There is no other name given under heaven whereby men can be saved, but Jesus Christ, the name Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And that's because he was perfect and died for our sins as a substitute in our place. And when we receive the work that he did upon the cross, then we are brought to life and we are crucified with Christ. And it is no longer we that live, but it's Christ that lives in us. All right, Tom, if you have any more questions, I'd love to um, about this, uh, then go ahead and follow up. I appreciate um, I appreciate your questions. I hope you have a good day. Uh, we have another question, this one from Debbie. And Debbie says, um, how have you handled the folks in the church who have a barrier how music today is formatted in a way that will fit our young people? It makes me think stiff-necked. Thank you, Pastor Robert. All right, so if you're asking the question, are there people that don't like modern-day Christian worship? Yes, <laughs> most definitely. Um, they would love for us, our church, for example, has, we have our reach worship team, which is made up of probably close to 30 different people. The teams break up and, and, and do different campuses at different times, and they play more modern music. They read, they rewrite a lot of hymns. Our worship team are so talented. Reach Worship is just incredibly talented and they're so good at what they do in leading people before the throne. And we have to realize, hey, if I sit through worship and I don't like it, well, it's not for me, it's for God. We're the choir and we're singing to him. We're singing praises and worship to him. Uh, it, it makes sense that it would be, that the music would be like music that we play today. Even many of the hymns were written to bar music, just songs that they knew. And so it was applied. And today when we hear those songs, we're like, oh, that's so good, that's so moving. It was originally with the different words, but the same, the hymn was bar music. It was just a different time. And so we wanna be as effective as we can ministering to the audience. And that's really a key. And I would say to those of you that are worship leaders, those of you who are pastors, don't try don't try to make your worship into something that it's not consider your audience and what they want to hear so if if um you're just starting out and you've got 10 people then i don't know don't bring don't bring a huge band up on stage with a bunch of lights and fogs and make it into this big show with the 10 people who are there who could be looking around going i don't know what's going on probably better just to bring out one guy with a guitar, lead the 10 people in worship, let them have a, a genuine worship experience. If God leads you to build something like that later, then, then build it later. But consider your audience. And I think churches make huge mistakes by not considering their audience when it comes to worship. Um, and 
You know, there's always going to be, there's songs I don't like. There's songs I play, play, I think are played to death. Now, I sit in church a lot, but I think some songs are played to death, and I'm like, if I hear this song one more time, I'm gonna, it's going to drive me crazy. I also, um, sometimes songs are really, they drag on to me. It's like, this is just really not very upbeat, and it just kind of like drags on, and that, but it's not for me. So I wait for the song to get done, and then perhaps have a song a little bit later on that I really enjoy. Um, I try not to, to answer your question, Debbie, I try not to judge someone. If someone comes in and says, I don't like the music, I, I you know what, I, we may go to another, I just try to say, okay, maybe God's leading you to another church. I try not to judge them as to whether or not they're stiff-necked or whatever it might be um, for whatever reason. God knows, God knows whatever those reasons are. And churches should just do their best to try to meet the needs of those people who are there. Okay, great, thank you. Good to see you, Daniel, here today. Uh, we have a question from Shelly. Uh, Shelly says, uh, hi, Pastor. First uh, Timothy 3.16, all right? Uh, may think this verse is referring to Jesus. In my study, I've come to believe it's speaking of God. Can you tell me your perspective on this passage? Let me go ahead and uh, pull that up here. First Timothy 3, and let me get to verse 16, and then I'll put it on the screen for you guys. Um, let's see. All right, so um, let's go ahead and start in verse 14. I'm going to go ahead and bring this up on screen. Um, and it says, um, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. Now here's your verse. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. Okay, so, uh, I am here. All right, there we go. Um, all right, so you say that, is this verse referring to Jesus and that you've studied some and believe it's referring to God? Um, I'm going to, I'm going to give you a both on this. Okay. So I'm just going back over it again. Uh, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. So that tells us right there that the aspect of God is a mystery. Okay. And he's going to go on to describe God. And so he's not just talking about man being godly, but godliness is a mystery. And this is the complexity of God we talk about in the Old Testament. He says, God was manifested in the flesh and that's Jesus becoming a man that's manifest in the flesh justified in the spirit uh so god is spirit those worship in the spirit and truth seen by angels so god has been seen by angels preached among gentiles believed on in the world and received up into glory which would be which would be the ascension of jesus back up into heaven where an angel declared that he's going to return the same way in the clouds so i'm going to say that it's broader than just Jesus, but it is talking about Jesus, okay? And um, I'm not sure how you would interpret received up into glory and God was manifested in the flesh to be talking about the Father or the Spirit, um, which they're probably all three being mentioned here, but this specifically is talking about Jesus. All right, Shelly, 
I appreciate your question. Thank you very much. Um, if you want to give some more details on how you might think that might be otherwise, uh, I'll, uh, I'll go ahead and take your question. All right. So we have a question here from John. John comes to us from YouTube. Good to see you, John. John says, good afternoon. Always look forward to these quests. Thank you. M me too. I've been noticing that along with the growing anger, there has been an increase in friends being moved to pray more and they are more. All right. So let me just try to figure this out. I've been noticing that along with a growing anger, there has been an increase of friends being moved to pray more, more and more. All right. So I'm not quite sure, John, sorry, what your question is asking. Um, maybe it got cut off or, or maybe you can't really, I know that, that um, YouTube reduces the, the, how long your sentence can be. Facebook doesn't. So I'm going to go ahead and move on and please resubmit that question, maybe given a little bit better understanding rather than just trying to take a guess at what you're asking there. I'm not really sure. Okay. So um, we have a question from uh, Peter Lopez. Good to see you, Peter. Peter says, West Campus Men's Bible Study last night went through Mark chapter 10. Can you provide some details whether a man or a woman can remarry after divorcing for sexual immorality as stated in Matthew 19.9. How does this align with Mark 10.9? Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Let me just go to Mark 4.9. I want to make sure that I've got that in its context before I answer this. All right. Um, let's see. Um, Mark, you said Mark? Oh, Matthew 10. Oh, 10, 9. Okay. All right. Sorry. Mark, um, Mark 10, 9. All right. Sorry. Let me go ahead and get to um, Mark 10. Let me go to verse 9. All right. So there we go. So this is in the context of marriage and divorce. Um, and he's talking about, talks to the Pharisees. Let me go ahead and bring you in here to the scriptures, all right? Uh, so uh, this says, um, let's just go ahead and start from verse seven. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall be become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Oh, all right, so yeah. So it's telling us here that it's God's will, God's desire, God's plan that men and women would be married forever. Divorce is ugly to God. Uh, it's violent. And I would say, and I think it's the work of the enemy. I think the enemy wants people to get divorced. And so he's, he's working hard to try to make that happen. And without grounds of divorce, and it's happening a lot. The, the enemy's really attacking in this area. Uh, but there are a handful of things that the Bible gives us that justify divorce. One of them is sexual immorality. The word is fornicaea, and it means more. It means it means um, it means fornication and adultery. And if Jesus said, if someone marries for uh, if someone divorces except for sexual immorality, and they marry another, they commit adultery. Which means that the marriage bond is torn apart. The two have been torn apart when the person had the affair. 
and the person, the offender, could choose to forgive and to restore the marriage, not the offended, but the, the offender could. But the offended has the right to be able to say, I'm done. I can't handle this anymore. And so um, I'm, I'm not gonna stay with you. And they're not sinning. The Bible also talks about that Jesus would have you not separate, but then in 1 Corinthians chapter seven, but if you do separate, remain single or be reconciled. And we always say that a separation is for the purpose of reconciliation. And um, then it goes on to say that if a non-believer leaves, let them go. You are not uh, you are not under bondage, but you are free. And we take that to, to mean that if a non-believer says, I wanna walk away, I don't wanna follow you as a Christian, that that person is free to remarry. All right, so that's just kind of a quick um, synopsis. Per reasons for separation would be abuse, uh, addiction, perhaps not handling finances correctly. Someone might say, you know what, we need to separate, get this straightened out. Um, there obviously would be other problems that would be involved there as well. Uh, all right, so I hope that answers your question. Uh, I've done a lot of studying on marriage, remarriage, divorce and the Christian. Uh, I'm gonna be putting together some videos on it as well. Uh, we'll do some hot topics and um, I'm sure we'll have more questions about it as we have our Q and A's. All right, so thank you very much, Peter. Uh, uh, for that. Uh, we have another question from Michaela and Michaela comes to us from Facebook. Good to see you again, Michaela. And Michaela says, I know that putting a date on the rapture is foolish and pointless because Jesus himself doesn't know the day of his return. But we know the season and we are in the season. Is it outside reason that it would could very well happen before 2028 or even this year. Um, thank you again, Michaela, for your question. <laughs> yeah, I think we're living in the last days. I think it's the nation of Israel that gives us that greatest sign. They became a nation again in 1948 after not being a nation for 2,000 years. The Bible says that God would bring them back into the land twice and they would not be taken out of the land again. They are in the land that second time. Jesus said Jerusalem would be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Romans talks about the time of the Gentiles being fulfilled and Israel being saved once that's done. So God's gonna turn his work from the Gentiles back to Israel once again. So Israel is that super sign. We have people today, um, the Jews have returned to the Temple Mount. They're going up on the Temple Mount to pray. We know that the temple gets rebuilt because the Antichrist causes the abomination of desolation and he sits in the temple of God, the Bible says. So we are living in those last days. How close we are, I don't know. Could it come before 28? Yes, could it come really soon? I think it will. I think that our world is getting more and more corrupt. I think the, the, the smallness of the world, meaning that we can communicate around the world today, that cultures around the world are becoming like each other. And the way the Bible describes the, what the world is like, people in the world are like in the last days, is like they are today. So I do believe we're living in the last days. And I think the next thing on God's clock is the rapture of the church and that we will not go through the tribulation period. Uh, God's not mad at us. Uh, the tribulation period is the time of Jacob's trouble, um, Jeremiah 30, verse seven. Um, and so God's gonna deal with Israel again and people say, well, I'm going into tribulation. I'm going to make it, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to serve God. Well, 
all, full authority over the saints is given to the Antichrist in the book of Revelation. So you are, and then and, and the saints would be the tribulation saints. So follow God now while you can, live for him now, because one day the rapture is going to happen and hey, I, I'm believing more and more that people are going to justify it by aliens, more and more. These people that are archaic, that are standing in the way, when really we're restraining in 2 Thessalonians, it says that which restrains must be taken out of the way first. That's the church. We're the ones that restrain. We, we change the way people live and we don't let them do what they want to do. They want to do and they hate the fact that we stand in the way. So um, I understand why you might be talking about 2028. All right. Um, we're going to see a lot of date setting coming up. And I'm glad that you would never set a date. But the Bible says when you see these things begin to happen, and I think it's talking specific about the nation of Israel. Look up, for your redemption draws nigh. It doesn't say look around for the Antichrist. It says look up for your redemption draws nigh. In 2 Thessalonians, the, 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 the church there thought they were in the tribulation period. And Paul writes them and says, considering the gathering together of ourselves, the anti and, and the last days, the, 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 um, that which restrains must be taken away first, which is the church, and the Antichrist must come first. So you guys are not in the tribulation period because the Antichrist isn't around. But we are looking for Jesus, not for the Antichrist, and never are we told in the Bible to look for him. So yeah, we are living in those last days. I believe that we're going to be taken out of here. I know it's strange to people, and I know mockers are going to mock, and people do mock today. Part of the, the mocking that we get and and, and people so venomous on on YouTube, on the comment sections, which I know now why ministries on YouTube don't have their comment sections open because the things people say. And the, but the Bible says in the last days, mockers are gonna arise. And so we're being mocked for what we believe that's extremely biblical. And um, that's more proof that we're living in the last days. All right, Michaela. Thank you very much for your question. I really appreciate it. Got a cute um, little baby there. All right. So we have another question from Andre. Uh, again, good to see you, Andre. Andre says, uh, my understanding of the Roman Catholic Church is that they worship saints and pray to the Virgin Mary. Would you consider this blatant deception by Satan in an attempt to lead others from Christ? All right. I can tell you what they would say. They would say, that they ask Mary to pray for them. That they're not praying to her, but they're asking Mary to pray for them. So they're not asking Mary to do anything for them is what they would say, but they're asking Mary, the mother of Jesus, because of her position to be able to ask Jesus. Um, which asking Mary, because she's not God. She, she can't do everything God can do. She can't hear all of our prayers at once. Uh, this comes out of tradition, doesn't come out of the Bible, so they have a different authority. So when you start to talk to them and say the Bible doesn't say that, they say, yeah, but we had it handed down through tradition. And you go, well, I don't believe in tradition. And they go, well, we do. And so they have a different authority than what we do. And I think that th authority leads them astray. Does that mean that they don't love God? Well, I don't know. You know, I'm going to be careful not to judge them. A lot of, a lot of people will, but I'm not going to. If you have a genuine, sincere relationship with Christ and it's not through the sacraments that you believe you're being saved, because if you think you're saved because you took the sacraments, then you're not saved. You're saved by a relationship with Christ, being born again, um, worshiping the saints. Uh, 
I'm not fam I'm not all that familiar. I was brought up Methodist, and I've never really had anyone any close Catholic friends that I've been able to watch what they do when they light a candle to saints and sit down to pray. Are they are they worshiping? Are they again asking whatever these saints are to pray for them? I'm not really sure. Um, so I I do believe it is deception. I do believe that they are that they're believing something that is wrong. Uh, I don't think that means that they're not genuine Christians because they may be. Again, you just want to be careful not to judge them. But many that are in the Catholic Church think they're okay just because they go to church or just because they take the sacraments. Or to them, they're part of what is the right, the Catholic Church, the universal church. So they're, they're going to heaven. Jesus said, many who say to me, Lord, Lord, will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And some will say, we did miracles in your name. We cast out demons in your name. And he'll say to me, away from me, I never knew you. So we cannot count on religion to be able to make it up into heaven. All right. Thank you, Andre, for your question. I really appreciate that. We have a question from Jari. Jari, good to see you. Uh, Jari says, should a church fast corporately in order for spiritual revival, does obedience bring blessings? All right, I'm going to take these in two different orders. So, uh, in the Old Testament, there was a command to call a holy fast. So, Israel was supposed to call people to fast. In the New Testament, we fast as we determine to. We have not been told any particular day that we're supposed to fast or time that we're supposed to fast. And so, if a church wants to call a fast, a church can do that. And I, I, I when I fast... I always, when I fast spiritually, okay, I always want to fast for a reason because I, I see it as mourning. There's something that strikes you and I fast that God might do something and revival would be a good reason to do that. Um, for the, uh, fasting for the unborn. If just, you know, one life could be saved. Um, fasting for people, you know, revival, people getting saved would be great. Um, does obedience bring blessings? Yes, certainly, without controversy. Jesus said, blessed is he who hears and does the things that are written in the word of God. So yeah, without, yeah, there's, there's no one who would say that being obedient to God doesn't bring blessings. Being obedient to God immediately might mean awful things. Some people lose their lives when they're obedient to God, but overall are blessed. So you've got to make sure you know how to define what a blessing is. But obedience, without argument, is, is to bring blessing into your life. You may suffer, you may be persecuted, but ultimately there will be a blessing that will come from your obedience. All right. Thank you, Jari. I really appreciate that. Uh, we have another question, uh, again, from Shelly. Shelley says in 1 Timothy 3, 2, Paul describes the qualifications of church leaders. Why does he say leaders should be the husband of one wife? Can leaders remarry if they divorce for adulterous reasons if their wife passes away? Question mark. What does the priest think? Um, why, why do priests think they can't marry? All right, so let's just take these one at a time. All right, first of all, um, why does he say that leaders should be the husband of one wife? Because it was not uncommon in the world that they were in for men to have more than one wife. It was polygamy that he was speaking against. 
And we know that the clear teaching of the Bible is a one man and one woman are to be joined together and become one flesh. And so if a man had to, was living and had two wives, it just disqualified him from being a leader in the church. If he was living in that culture and he was married to two wives before, uh, should he divorce one? I don't know. I don't know what God really required of that individual. We don't find it in scripture, but we know that he could not be in leadership. Uh, can leaders remarry if they divorce for adulterous reasons or their wife passes away? Yes, they can. I am remarried. My wife passed away in 2012 and I married Kathy in uh, 2015. And uh, she passed away from uh, stage four lung cancer. And um, I do believe God, Bob says when a man finds a wife, he finds a good things. Why do priests think they can't? So we get another question about Catholicism and maybe some of the other um, Orthodox religions that are out there that put restrictions on priests marrying. Uh, the reason is because people, men, men have decided that. It's not in the Bible. Uh, in fact, the Bible does say that in the last days there's going to be those who forbid marriage. And we have marriage being forbidden. And with what's happened in the Catholic Church, with the priests and molestations, they should just reverse it. Go ahead and let priests get married. Doesn't It doesn't mean anything. And, and let, let nuns get married. Just let them get married. And um, there are things that the Catholic Church is reversing now in the ways that, uh, things that they've done in the past. They're changing things and they could change this. And I think it's just something that should be changed personally. All right. Thank you, Shelly, for your question. Uh, questions. I really appreciate that. And we have another question here, or a question from Sharon. Sharon says, um, I ran from Oracle Grant area this morning to Rosemont and Speedway area, kept our police officers in prayer. It's everywhere, um, it's everywhere, wild, sad, evil days, what I saw. Police had 20 cars blocking areas, crazy crime. Ah. All right, so this is not a question. I'm looking for questions that say questions, so I think I jumped in to a middle of a conversation that someone was having online. All right, so we have another question here from Jari, and we will bring that in. Uh, good to see you again, Jari. Question, why weren't Adam and Eve created at the same time? Could there be two implications? Could there be an implication that if Eve ate of the fruit and Adam didn't, she would die? Um, so I don't, Jari, I don't know why God didn't create them at the same time. Maybe God wanted, God was setting up a co-leadership with them. They were given dominion over the earth and God wanted a role for men and a role for women and God brought them about. I, I don't know that we know exactly what those roles were completely today uh, because men fell. And I have, the second part is just hypothetical um, and I have no way of telling um, they didn't, you know, what would happen if they, if she would have eaten and Adam wouldn't have. I have no way of telling that. Um, they ate, they both did. And Eve was deceived and ate and Adam deliberately, sinfully ate. And it was because of Adam that sin came into the world is what the Bible says. Okay, thanks Jerry for your question. We have a question from Joe. Joe says, um, I am seeking further clarity, follow-up regarding mediums and psychics. You said the spiritual gifts in Corinthians 
were for only Christians. What about those that truly claim to be a Christian and be a medium? Are you saying they are liars or misleading? Uh, yeah, so we've been getting a lot of, a lot of questions, uh, Joe, on mediums. Um, yeah, I don't think you can be a medium and be a Christian. I'm, I'm even going to go beyond that. I'm going to go, you need to turn away from being a medium, um, a psychic, and turn to Christ and live for him to be saved. We have to repent and change. And when someone gets saved, a medium may be able to get saved, but God's going to convict them that this psychic stuff and the medium stuff is wrong. And I don't know, you might not like that, Joe, that the response that we've been giving. But the Old Testament says it's an abomination to God. And in the New Testament, these things are either fakes, right? And most of them are. People are just faking it. And if there is anything spiritual, it's demonic and should be stayed away from. Just as Christians, we should stay as far away from it as possible. And if there's somebody that says, I'm a Christian and I'm a psychic, um, hey, I... I don't know. That's like somebody saying, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian and I'm uh, an adulterer. I'm having an affair and I'm living in that affair. I don't know. You know, does that, do those things knock each other out? You, you can't be in this great sin and be claiming to be a Christian. I'm not saying that a Christian has never had an affair. I'm talking about somebody that doesn't want to repent from it. It's an area of sin in their lives that they do not want to repent from. And operating as a psychic we're supposed to trust in god to lead us and guide us not in psychics not in tarot cards not in horoscopes but in the living god who we have our future and our hope in completely all right joe so thank you very much um, i'm sorry if that offends you but you if, if it's you you need to come to christ and turn away from it if it's someone that you know um the same thing all right so thank you joe i appreciate that um so John P. says, uh, I have noticed that along with worsening world anger, ah, so we're getting a question now, thank you. Okay, with worsening world anger, my fellow sisters and brothers in Christ are moved to study and pray more each day. Our excitement is also growing. Your thoughts, please bless you. Thank you, John, I appreciate that. And I appreciate you um, uh, retyping in your question. I think I got cut off by YouTube. Um, so, uh, what's the is there a question in here? Uh, your thoughts, please. Okay, yeah. So, I do believe that the world is growing worse and worse every day. I think that's what Jesus meant when he said that there were going to be, it was like the beginnings of sorrows, that things are getting worse and worse. There is a uh, amillennial position or a non-millennial position, post-millennial position, that believes that the world's getting better and better and we're gonna Christianize the world and then Jesus is gonna come back. That doesn't fit what we're seeing. We're seeing the world getting worse and worse. In fact, that position fell out of favor after World War I and then World War II shortly on its heels. That position that we were making the world and, and, and it's very few people, few Christians who really believe that today. So yeah, and um, I think we need to be, be praying and doing the work of the gospel. We've been guaranteed success, the gates of hell, will not prevail against you. And so let's do the gospel. Let's step out. Let's make a difference and, and see the things uh, that we're supposed to see and do the things that we're supposed to do. So John, thank you very much for your question. 
I really appreciate that. I, I do think uh, that you are correct. All right, so we have a question from Andre. So Andre says, question, what is the sign of the Son of Man as mentioned in Matthew 24, 30? Thanks um, in advance, much appreciated. You're welcome, Andre. So Matthew 24, 30 is the return of Jesus. They see the sign of the Son of Man in the heavens and he's coming back to earth, okay? And he's gonna, you know, other places tell us he comes to Jerusalem and he put plants his feet on the Mount of Olives. Uh, it's shortly after that that the tribulation saints are gathered together from one corner of the earth to another by the angels and they bring them back to Jesus uh, and then Jesus judges mankind in the battle of Armageddon and then judges the world. So this is the return. What is the sign of the Son of Man in the sky particularly? I don't know. Maybe the Son of Man? Maybe there's a sign of the Son of Man that we don't know exactly what it is. Um, there was a star that marked his first birth. That was the sign of his birth. So I'm, I don't think that we know what the sign of the Son of Man is other than maybe it's just the Son of Man showing up in heaven or maybe some sign that accompanies his return as he returns. But thank you for your question, Andre. I appreciate it. And uh, we look forward uh, for that day when Jesus Christ does return. And before that, that we are taken uh, up to be with him. We have another question from Jari. Jari, appreciate you and appreciate your questions. Uh, Jari comes to us from YouTube and Jari says, um, would an economy or an, an ec economic system without money work if in a fallen world? Would there be chaos if everything was free and everyone got what they wanted and needed immediately? So um, again, this is kind of a question that I'm, I'm going to have to speculate on what I don't know. Would an economic econo economy or an economic system without money work in a fallen world? Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know. It's kind of like Star Trek, right? Star Trek didn't have any money. People just had what they needed. And I don't know. Communism, socialism tries to head down that road to some degree. And... I don't, I don't know. It doesn't seem to work. Um, I, I, th what we do know, we do know where the world's going. Where the world's going to where there's going to be a one world government, one money around the world that's controlled by the Antichrist. Who's going to, you have to pledge allegiance to the Antichrist. So the speculation would kind of be nothing unless, I don't know, some experiment is tried between now and then. Um, personally, I don't think it would really work in the world today. All right. Um, uh, all right, so we have a question here from Joshua. And Joshua says, if you're afraid you committed the impardonable sin of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit or grieving the Holy Spirit, I'm not sure grieving the Holy Spirit is the impardonable sin, by the way, um, what should you do and can you explain the difference between the two a little bit better than me? Okay, yeah. So um, the Bible just says to us, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit leads us, convicts us of sin, of righteousness and judgment. We can grieve the Holy Spirit when we're just walking away from God, when we're just not doing what God wants us to do, when we're clearly hear the Holy Spirit and don't do it. So there's all kinds of ways in which we can grieve the Holy Spirit. We don't want to do that. But to blasphemy the Spirit, and we see this in two places, Hebrews chapter six, and also when the scribes and Pharisees, these religious leaders, 
had all the information they needed to know Jesus was the Messiah. They had all this knowledge. They saw miracles Jesus did and they rejected, rejected, rejected and finally said that he was casting out demons by Beelzebub. And Jesus gave them a warning then that if you keep doing these things, it could be blasphemy of the Spirit. He said, a word spoken against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit will not. It doesn't say a word spoken against the Holy Spirit would be not be forgiven. It's blasphemy of the Spirit, which is a continual rejection when you have knowledge. So you have to have knowledge. You have to have a lot of knowledge. This is in Hebrews 6 as well. They've tasted the heavenly gifts. They've had this, this list of things they had, and then it's impossible to renew them to repentance. So once you've committed the unpardonable sin, I believe that you don't want to repent. You say, I don't want to come back to Christ. I don't want to follow Jesus. I don't want to follow him. And you say, well, then maybe you had all this knowledge. You didn't respond to it and you're past the point of being able to respond to it. Well, I don't like that. Well, then repent. Well, I want to repent. I don't know what to tell you, right? So that's the unforgivable sin. Um, if you're afraid you committed it, my, my question is always, do you want to come back? And if you say yes, well, then you haven't committed it. If you say, no, I don't want to come back, then it's like, well, maybe you have. I don't know if you've committed it for sure, but if you don't want to come back now, it, it's impossible to renew them to repentance. doesn't say it's impossible for them to be saved. They want to be saved, but they can't. It's impossible to renew them to repentance. All right. So thank you very much, Joshua, for your question. Um, I can't believe the hour goes by so fast. We're almost done here. Uh, we'll look for a couple more questions and um, then we'll be wrapping it up. We'll have another Q&A uh, at uh, two, uh, three o'clock on Saturday. So we'll take a look at these questions. Uh, continue to write your questions in until we're done uh, and write the word question in front of it. I'll look at this log and see if I can find any questions for future Q&As to start off with. So I'd like to start off with a question while people are loading the rest of their questions, all right? I also wanna welcome those of you who are joining us for the very first time on this podcast. We hope that you are genuinely blessed and uh, you can write us a review. You can do that on iTunes. You can do it on Apple. You just go anywhere where um, podcasts are done and you can write a review on our podcast. We would appreciate that, all right? So um, Ruben says, question, what verse described the first half of the tribulation? Mr. Riley, uh, um, in my Mr. Riley, Mr. Riley Study Bible, my, uh, my Riley Study Bible uh, views Matthew 24, 4 through 14 as mirroring Revelation 6, 1 through 8. How common is this view? So, um, yeah, I had a Riley um, Study Bible for a long time, uh, and I don't think that that's a proper view, that that what you're stating here is a proper view. I need to look at the Ryrie Study Bible a little bit more to see exactly what it's, it's saying. Um, but the first two chapters of Revelation are to the church. There's three chapters. You have a vision of Jesus, then you have the first two to the church, uh, and so then you've got a couple more chapters of the church up in heaven before the Lamb tears the seal and the tribulation period starts. And that starts at chapter six. So I, I don't know how common the view is. Uh, I don't I, I, I don't see the connection between one, ch chapters one through eight because the tribulation period starts in verse six and um, four through 14. Um, I'll take a look at it. 
Ruben and uh, see if I want to address it again later on in um, maybe in Saturday's Q&A or in another Q&A if you bring the question up again. All right. So it's four o'clock right now. I'm going to go ahead and extend this just a touch. All right. We're going to take one more question. It's funny too. Whenever I do this, you know that the question is a, is, ends up being a long question. So I'm just going to look down here through here. I'll find a question. So Maria has a question. Maria says, question, I won't say where I work, but I have a vendor who came into our office and was uh, telling another one of my coworkers that you believe that COVID isn't real and that you don't believe in the science of that's what you tell your staff. All right, so I'm um, trying to look at this here. Um, I want to say where I work. Okay, but you came in and it's been an office and another one of my coworkers. So another one of your coworkers said that they didn't believe COVID was real. They didn't believe in the science. And that's what you tell your staff. So that's what I tell my staff. So that I'm, I'm kind of confused on your question, Maria. Um, I'm gonna answer this a couple of different ways. If it's somebody that's coming in and saying, I don't believe in COVID, I don't believe in the science, um, I think that's a mistake. COVID-19 is real. There are millions of people that have died from it around the world. Um, we know people that have died from it. Uh, it's been politicized, which is a drag. It's, we've been lied to about it. They, I don't know that they handle it the right way. I. I don't know that locking up the healthy, I don't know that's ever been done before. Maybe it has, but I don't know of it. And it may have led to it spreading more because when you lock the healthy up, you're locking them up with people who are sick. And if being in, breathing their same air and being close to them, it could have spread it even more. I don't know, I just think it could have been handled differently. Came out of China and China locked their people up. They're a communist nation. Their people do not have freedoms. There's all kinds of atrocities that take place in China. Um, if, if this person said that I say this to my staff, then I'm being slandered. I never said it to the staff. I wouldn't use, even use a phrase like I don't believe in the science. That's a silly phrase. I believe, I believe in science, to quote Stephen from uh, Nacho Libre. Um, and I believe that COVID-19 is real. And um, I, I, I don't know. So the people that don't believe it's real, that don't believe in the science, I think it's a huge mistake for, for them uh, to do that. And I realize it's been politicized, but I don't care. You know, it's, um, there's a disease in our midst, there's a pandemic, and I just pray that people begin to handle it properly because it's still in our presence, maybe um, because of the way that it's been handled. And people have lied about it to create all of this division. We just live in such a divisive time where things get uh, where things gets politicized. All right, but I absolutely never told my staff that that's what they're being said. Okay, and they would never say such a thing. All right, so thank you very much for joining us uh, in our Truth Quest podcast. We hope that you're blessed. Uh, in two hours, we have a service. We're going to be covering First Thessalonians chapter four verses. I think it's thirteen through eighteen, uh, and this is the rapture of the church. And I'm going to talk about seven truths for the pre-tribulation rapture uh, that, we're, that, that we are going to go and be before him. I'm also going to talk quickly about some of the objections that are brought up and the objections that people say 
and why I don't believe that they are true. Uh, and we'd love to have you join us. So you can join us online uh, by tuning in uh, to our YouTube tip page or on Facebook. Make sure to like, subscribe, and share uh, this podcast uh, on Facebook and on uh, YouTube. The more that you guys do that, the more this gets out to more people. We want to reach out and minister and see more people saved and really living for Jesus. So that's our desire. God bless you guys. I hope you have a great day. I look forward to seeing some of you guys here in a couple of hours as we start, as we fire up our service. So I'm going to go ahead and sign out now. God bless you guys. We will